0: This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome to our friends here joining us live on Clubhouse. Welcome to TGIFDCT. And for our audience that is listening later on, through the podcast channels, to the Decentralized Trials podcast. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here where we discuss topics related to the adoption and implementation and success with decentralized trials on a global basis. And we talk about this every Friday live, 12 to one Eastern time on the Clubhouse app if you are joining us on a replay that's fabulous and hopefully that can work well for you but if you're able to join live on one friday afternoon it's an even better opportunity because as you'll see from our format we'll talk with our guests for the first half of our hour and then we're going to open up the room in the second half of the hour for the opportunity for folks in the audience to raise their hand and jump in the conversation with their experiences and bring their questions into the conversation as well I'm really excited about today's topic um, because we talk a lot as a community about the challenges related to site adoption. Of decentralized research approaches and where there's um, uh, where those challenges are really creating barriers to meaningful adoption and I was at a, a conference a couple of weeks ago um, where Emily and her team were participating and I, I really enjoyed a hallway conversation where I was learning a bit more about the scope of the Uh, I'll call them the scope of the tools that are available in our organization, having both decentralized methods as well as adjacent to that, a network of research sites. And it got me wondering if, if your one company has both sites and these decentralized methods, how is adoption going there and are there learnings from keeping that all within one circle, within one enterprise, are there interesting learnings that can help the rest of the community in terms of doing more and doing better? And so, uh, Jane, I know you spend a lot of time talking with folks about these site adoption barriers. Uh, Did this seem like an interesting hypothesis to you to go down today?
1: Oh yeah, for so many little rabbit holes that I'm gonna try and stay out of. but i am particularly interested in hearing if there are things that are working and i'll say in quotes at scale or if you found some ways to help sites get over some of the speed bumps for adoption so really excited about this and i have some specific questions but i'll hold them
0: well let's jump in and uh, amir unless you have any other uh, opening thoughts we can jump right in and get to meet our guests today. Um, Maybe we can start, Emily, with you, uh, since uh, you're somebody I just had run into at this conference. Emily, if you don't mind, introduce yourself to the audience and share a bit about what it is you do every day.
2: Awesome, thanks, Craig. So hi, everybody, Emily Mitchell. I am the global head of our DCT strategic operations team at Icon PLC. Um, which is a large CRL within the industry. Uh, For those of you that are unfamiliar, I head up our team that looks at, evaluates, and makes recommendations on best ways to add decentralized elements to clinical research trials, and to be able to look at ways that we can reduce not only patient burden, but also that ever important site burden. Um, So that's a little bit about me and what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, And I have brought along the experts with me um, who are much smarter than I am as far as day-to-day implementations.
0: Well, let's keep talking to all of the experts on this and and in that context, I'd love to, you know, uh, hopefully we'll dig in a little deeper about what are some of those decentralized research tools and methods that are in the org, but why don't we pass the baton, Maddie, over to you, if you don't mind doing the same, just introduce yourself for the audience and maybe share a bit about what, uh, what you look after day to day.
3: Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for for having me today. And uh, I work very closely with Emily at ICON. I'm a senior director sitting within our DCT solution enablement team. And my primary focus is around um, ICON's digital platform, and working with our operational and service stakeholders, including our, um, our our Excelicare sort of in home services and site networks, to see how we can, you know, enable sort of Technology around those services to uh, to enhance the offerings and help people out. Of course, we we run into um, you know all kinds of different uh, you know challenges and ways we can provide support for different users, including uh, certainly participants and sites uh, within that space.
0: Fabulous! Thanks, Maddie, and Maddie uh, and Emily too. Where where, uh, where is home for you? Where do you uh, where where do you work out of for your uh, for Icon?
2: So I am based in sunny slash gloomy Wilmington, Delaware today, um, right outside of our Bluebell office, um, so I'm here on the East Coast. And
3: I'm East Coast as well, but on the far East Coast of Canada, sitting in Halifax, Nova Scotia.
0: Wow, so what? there you go, what? Maddie's, Maddie's going to get a whoop from our, uh, our resident Canadian on the on the call.
1: N- not just a Canadian, a maritimer, All right. Stop so <laughs> where are you, Jane? Well, I'm in California, but born and raised in New Brunswick,
3: oh, really, okay. well, we'll have to catch up afterwards because I was raised in New Brunswick also, so we probably have some shared history there. <laughs> it's a small, small province
0: <laughs> that's going to be on our spin off podcast. Decentralized trials in New Brunswick. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have Jane and Maddie hosting that new spin off show kicking off soon. Um, Megan, it's great to have you here. Please introduce yourself and uh, tell us where a home is for you.
4: Hi, yes. So I am actually a project manager within AcelaCare, and AcelaCare is the um, site network that is owned and affiliated with ICON. Um, So my day-to-day is I have several trials that I basically just facilitate and be that main liaison between the site network and the CRO, so most of the time ICON, and making sure that our sites are recruiting, hitting timelines, and study startup, and kind of thinking of -of out-of-the-box ways that we can do things uh, like DCT trials and making sure that we can execute them effectively. Um, And home for me is Raleigh, North Carolina. So again, on the East Coast.
0: Fabulous. Well, excellent. It's uh it's it's good to have some some East Coasters here with me because I'm usually outnumbered with Amir and Jane, uh, weighing us down with uh, with with all of that West Coast. So thanks for being here. You know, Emily. I, oh, sorry, Jane. I know that generated a, a questionable emoji over there. Emily, if 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 you don't mind, I'd love to just dig a little deeper because we we think in a lot about decentralized trials is really just being a collection of decentralized research methods digital platforms home health other capabilities Um, i'm curious for where you sit at icon can you describe a bit of what decentralized methods are in your portfolio at icon
2: Uh, sure so from our perspective we hit everything soup to nuts uh, from a decentralized perspective. Uh, Whether it is remote investigators, utilization of mobile research units through partnerships like Lightship, um, utilization of telehealth and wearables and sensors to collect data in remote capacity. And then as you mentioned, Craig, that platform that kind of ties it all together, and how do we use the technology to streamline the data that we're collecting from either patients or sites in a remote capacity?
0: Very interesting. And then Emily, adjacent to that, um, Megan, within Excellicare, can you expand a little bit on the sites that are in the Care network? It sounds like these are um, a part of ICON, uh, so th- in terms of the investigators and the therapeutic areas, but what, what does that footprint look like?
4: Yes, so we were previously um, a research network called PMG. We were acquired by ICON um, about six years ago, I believe. And so that has created Care, which is now a global um, site network basically. So we are located, um, we have about 13 to 15 sites across the US and then we have sites also in other countries. So the UK, South Africa, Um, Poland are some of the examples. Um, I work mainly with our US sites, but we have started to create more of a global team. Um, So with that, especially in the US, especially with DCT trials, we are able to um, maybe create like one site, have one PI with remote sites based off of that with sub eyes in order to basically grab a larger um, patient pool across the US based off of medical licensures and things like that.
0: Thanks so much. Uh, Jane, you're, you're dropping some uh, some applause there. D- did you have a question or a, a build on that for Megan?
1: I think that that model that you just talked about, Megan, is a dream state that many aspire to. Like this, I'll call it a hub and spoke network, especially in an international setting. But maybe, can you talk to us a little bit first about if there's a best fit set of trials for that model or if it's all comers or, or how do you fit your capabilities into the different opportunities? That's
4: a great question. Um, we have actually just uh, tried this model for the first time on a previous study and I will say it does help when it is um, a DCT trial that might be a little bit less involved for patients, maybe not necessarily in home services. It's like a full true DCT trial where the patients are doing virtual visits and things like that. That does typically help with our
1: reach of patients.
4: um, If that's what you're asking for.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm asking for. And, um, the reason I'm asking is because, and I'll just do a side dip here. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't know, but some of our, Member Orgs have been part of a collab working with me this spring summer on what we were calling alternative site locations and this concept of the meta site came up and one of the big questions we had was is that available outside of the US yet or is it in development and it came up with a gap in information so if you can help fill the gap that's an awesome start
4: I don't believe that we have tried this model in other countries yet. Um, It's a little bit harder over there with approvals. As far as I'm aware, I'm still learning all the nuances. So um, that is one thing we have not tried. We've only tried this type of model and DCT execution
1: in the US so far. Well, that's a okay. That's exactly how we have it on our infographic right now. So I was making sure we were not out of line, but I know that there are gonna be some experiments outside of the US, so very excited to hear about those.
2: And it's definitely conversations that we're continuing to have and poking and seeing where we can be innovative in looking at ways that we can do that. Specifically, Jane, when we think about it, we're trying to stay with single country um, to make sure that the regulatory hurdles aren't gonna be too complicated by multi-country and the various regulations
1: affiliated with that. Yeah, I think I'm equally interested, and Craig, you can pull me out of the rabbit hole on what you've seen from ethics approvals on using this model to date, and maybe you can bust a myth for us. Are there any concerns using a metasite model and having appropriate PI oversight when you're using a metasite? And do you have any evidence yet outside of the US on ethics and their receptivity to the model?
2: So I'll answer the second part first. No, we haven't um, had the conversations with the ethics committees yet outside of US. From the inside US perspective, the feedback we've gotten from the ethics committees have been they want very detailed information as far as who's doing what, where, why, and how um, to ensure that when we think about the hub and spoke type approach or even that multi-state licensed physician, how are we ensuring that there is that appropriate level of oversight? Who's supplementing their outreach and their support? Um, what qualifications do those individuals have and how is that information being retained, restored, protected from a privacy perspective and ultimately shared back to the physician?
1: Well, that's cool. So it's like, um, a very clear, I'm going to say racy model. Yes, very much so
2: and ensuring that the patient also has that understanding as they go through the consenting process, that it's not just one person necessarily from this uh, mega site or meta site model that would be doing the outreach, but there is additional support folks that are going to do outreach to them and ensuring that the patient is aware that they're gonna be receiving phone calls from somebody other than just Dr.
1: Jones. I'm giving you a heart emoji there. And the reason is because you have learned and integrated something that I learned somewhere else with a different organization, where part of the hub and spoke team didn't really fully explain to patients that there would be other people involved in their oversight and care. And that led to a few patients deciding to opt out of the trial, like they dropped out. So bravo for covering that so explicitly
2: thank you we enjoy trying to provide as much transparency to patients as possible
0: So Emily and um, Patty Megan there's there's a lot of concern out there that about um, about challenges with bringing decentralized trials into multi-central decentralized approaches into multi-center trials. The perception and the realities that there are investigators and, and staff that are reticent to use these approaches, that they're burdensome in terms of the technology, that they can be disruptive in terms of the workflow, that they're not being fairly compensated for the time required for oversight, and that they don't have the right tools to provide proper oversight when there are things like visiting nurses or connected devices, streaming data. I think that there's you know, a lot of reality in, in many of those concerns and, and that many of those concerns we can address as we mature these approaches and these models. But I'm curious, as you're working within one company, have you still seen some of those challenges? Have you developed internal strategies to mitigate some of those? And are there some takeaways that the rest of us can benefit from?
2: So I'm going to tag team here with Megan on this one. We definitely have, even within the same company, had to go back and forth with negotiation with the physicians as far as understanding of what their oversight is and the the compensation that is required of that, as well as the platforms and the training and the support that they would need, um, and clarification with the, the site staff on what they also were not going to be responsible for. How are we going to alleviate some of the tasks within our own organization of removing things like patient training, Um, Not being necessarily a requirement of the site or tech support not being a requirement of the site. So Megan, I don't know if you want to kind of hop in with some of the experience we had with some of the negotiations back and forth with our sites um, and some of the feelings that they had from that side.
4: Yeah, I definitely can. Um, these are all really good points as um, I'm sure if anybody has ever worked at a site before, um, especially for a DCT trial, we tend to feel like we are the IT person, like Emily said. So we're leaving that burden on the sites. And you know, how can CROs or other sponsors who would like to run DCT trials take that burden off of the sites? Um, as a lot of the time, the site is the main point of contact for patients, and that's the first person they call if they have issues or if they can't get onto their, um, you know, their virtual visit or anything like that. Um, I think the other part to that is also understanding that while, while it is a DCT trial, it doesn't necessarily change the amount of time or the amount of effort that is being put into the site. It's basically like having an on site visit for a patient. Um, so, while things are easier from a standpoint of the outreach of patients, we are able to see patients that we might not normally be able to reach if it was an on site study. Um, the, the time and effort that is still put into the sites is about the same as having an on site trial, if not more. Um, when you think about the systems. And as we have noticed with just, you know, doing this particular meeting now, technology is a wonderful thing, but it can also be a little bit of a burden. Um, So troubleshooting those instances and things like that. So with that, we did have a lot of negotiations, like Emily said, when we've run trials as one company, just to make sure that we are being, you know, properly compensated for the time and knowing that it is almost like running the same as an onsite trial.
2: I think the other thing I wanna call out is we need to reset the expectation with some of our patients that it's not a teledoc, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. just call in and be like, oh, I'm gonna to talk to the doctor now cause it's convenient for me. These are still physicians who do have practices that are still seeing patients in person as well. Um, and it's not a call center sitting around just waiting for somebody to just say, you know what, let's go ahead and have our telehealth visit now. Um, there needs to be planning and expectation setting on all fronts from both the site as well as the patient.
1: Huh. So that's interesting that you mentioned about the, what I'll call the time that sites spend in this model and sort of re, re-baselining expectations. Again, over in that alternative site location work we were doing we we often question whether or not at this point in time, while we're still learning, whether or not some of these new options for site locations reduced site burden or added it just because it was new, not because it wouldn't get better. And I'm I'm curious if you have any actual feedback or observations from your first implementation on that.
2: Um, so from the first implementation, it was all done with the same physicians. We didn't use any kind of community-based approach. Um, we are looking to do that moving forward, where we are pulling in community-based approach, but I think we've taken our lesson learned from the very first one, where the physician is saying, I still need time for oversight and applying that moving forward. So you know, everyone that we do, it's, it's a lesson learned um, and ensuring that we have time allocated to be able to oversee things like the labs or the home health nursing documents uh, so that they have a good feel and can actually affirm that they are doing the appropriate level of oversight for the patient care that they're receiving that is not being physically delivered by them. Many I don't know if from your research that you had done with your outreach that you presented at that uh conference we were at a couple weeks ago if if there was anything in there from a a site perspective as far as um what their perception was that you wanted to add
3: yeah i think um the i mean the primary theme which i think is a surprise to no one is that from both the um you know site perspective from the interview series that i did as well as the patient perspective um the, the climate of the carers, uh, in many cases, the sites was directly linked to the, the temperature of the patients. If they felt informed and in the loop and supported, then the patients felt the same. Where we saw situations where patients walked into chaos that was usually, you know, representative of kind of a lack of support and, uh, and uh, you know, disjointed implementation um, at the site level. Um, I think that uh, that one of the the common themes that that I found was that idea of and you mentioned I think technical support Jane and and Megan both I think that's a, you know an important aspect since certainly we are engaging with technology But um, I feel like one of the things that we've been trying to kind of play around with that theme of implementation of more um, of a kind of holistic um, (laughs) service and and technology support together that we understand more the operational delivery support and using the technology and centralizing that rather than um, looking at uh, how we can specifically support with the technologies, which are getting simpler and simpler. I don't think that's the part. I think it's the implementation. Where we need some, you know, unified guidance.
0: We're going to open up the room in just a couple of minutes. So if anyone has questions, feel free to cue them up in your mind. Start thinking about those. You know, one thought that certainly jumps to my mind, and I don't want to impose if this is a strategy you don't want to discuss. But is is this organization basically positioned to be a meta site because you have? PIs and coordinators and you have all this tech and infrastructure, are you positioning yourselves that you could support fully decentralized as well as hybrid studies?
2: I think from our strategy perspective, it's definitely something that is in play, but it's not the only strategy. We wanna be able to be able to, to support our clients with whatever ask that they have. Um, and I know that there are a lot of players that are in the, the mega site or meta site model. And ensuring that we're working collaboratively with the sponsors as well as with the patients um, to hear what their needs are and what their requests are. I think that's probably the most important piece. And then also working with the physicians. I'm sure, you know, Megan probably would say if if we talked to our Care physicians and asked them if that's the only type of medicine they wanted to do, there'd be a resounding no. Um, <laughs> And I think that that probably is true and indicative of the entire population of physicians at the moment too.
0: Sounds like that makes a lot of sense in terms of that spirit of, of bringing choice and flexibility into the models. And I think you know so many aspire to that future of, optionality and choice for participants, not just at the time that they sign up to say I'll be in a fully remote trial or hybrid or a brick and mortar, but how can I have choice in certain visits in the visit schedule to be able to be accommodated in different ways based on where I am as a patient in my own journey as a patient. Are you seeing um, Requests for that or opportunities to bring more optionality into the process, Emily?
2: We definitely are seeing requests for the optionality. I think the tricky part is making sure, A, that we don't bias the data by having it constantly flip back and forth between um, a remote versus an on site but also have the technology to support collection of that data whether it's remote or on site and having visibility to who is overarchingly responsible for seeing that data which is the physician so whether it's being a community based uh, a home health nurse, a televisit, how does all of that information get kept in one unified location that the physician has confidence that the patient is still receiving the care that is required per protocol and that they can then assess and ensure there is no risk to the patient as they're going through the, the trial?
1: So I wanted to double click there for one sec and it's going into the PI oversight domain. Um, This week I was speaking with some sites and, and there's still a lot of concern about what they need to, what PIs need to demonstrate to show appropriate oversight. So I'm curious how you help the PI who may be a very experienced researcher become more comfortable working with physicians in the network that he or she may not know personally. And how do you get that central PI, I'll say, more at ease around their oversight accountability? So I'm gonna tag team
2: here. Um, Megan, do you wanna weigh in on this a little bit?
4: I can weigh in um, from our site perspective. Um, luckily, when we kind of went with this model for a previous trial, it was only with all um, AcelaCare sites. So the PIs and or the investigators were a little bit more familiar with each other. One way that we um, implemented to provide oversight to the PI was we did do monthly meetings with all the PI as well as the sub-Is on the trial since they all live in different um, states. And then with that, they also, the PI also had access to um, the system that we were using for this trial and all of the patient data for oversight from that standpoint. Um, and in those meetings, we would talk about, you know, AEs that had um, uncovered or, you know, any SAEs, things like that in order to help maintain oversight as well as the PI actually having that the subject's data as well that they could see in real time. Um, but again, it happened with a AcelaCare, um, like, not employees, investigators. So it was a little bit easier to have like a good joint meeting and to be able to talk about those items, um, on a regular basis.
2: I mean, how often do we hear from our patients that they want to have a trusted relationship with mm-hmm. their physician? It's almost the same with physician to physician or physician mm-hmm. to lab. Like they need to trust, um, the home health nurses, the other physicians, the community um, treatments that are being provided to the patients, that they're receiving quality that is equivalent to the quality of care that they would be providing if the patient actually physically came in and saw them. And I think that is um, probably the biggest challenge right now, Jane, is uh, ensuring that there's that level of collaboration and trust being built between a maybe smaller research naïve primary provider compared to the actual physician who's doing
1: the investigational oversight oh I I totally agree and I will stay out of the rabbit hole (laughs) but um it is probably time Craig to allow others to ask questions I could keep going
0: let's keep those questions ready um if there are folks in the room that have a question a perspective and experience on today's topic around site engagement and making sure that our connectivity between decentralized methods and investigator and site staff needs are are truly connected Let's bring those forward. Take advantage of the hand-raising icon in the lower right, and then we're gonna challenge Emily and Maddie to see how, uh, how adept they are at, at, uh, at welcome you on the stage. So feel free to challenge Emily and Maddie by hitting that hand-raising icon. Um, and, uh, and while you are doing that, um, Jane, you sounded like you had another question on your mind. Sure
1: did. And Emily is in a great position to at least get us started on this. Um, Emily helped us figure out how exactly do you navigate the 1572 and delegation of authority forms when you're running a DCT earlier this year. And I'm interested to hear whether or not you feel like you have a standard, I'll say, in air quotes, standard approach to that now when you use a meta site and how you decide who goes where you don't have to show us your forms i'm more interested in your thought process um so what i shared during the collab
2: is kind of the icon approach as far as what we are looking to do which is making sure that we're looking at it from both a contractual perspective as far as sub-investigators versus sub-contractors, and where they fall within the 1572. So thank goodness we have the DTRA to provide us some helpful and useful support and guidance around this, because I think that when the FDA provided their updated uh, release on round DCT, there were a lot more questions than I think they originally had anticipated and what the intention was there needed some guidance and support. So I think that from an ICON perspective, when we're working outside of our own care network, it is making sure that we are looking at sponsor requirements, being a CRL, as well as our contractual and legal obligations. Uh, as far as listing folks or organizations like a central local lab um, as a subcontractor versus a sub-investigator, for instance. Um, Megan, do you have anything from the 1572 perspective as far as a lesson learned or uh, approach that we had done when we were looking at the multi-state licensure and the hub and spoke that we were doing um, for our decentralized trial?
4: I don't believe so. I was thinking back to that as well, Emily, and trying to think if there was anything that we ran into. I don't believe so. I think we treated it kind of like any other regular trial from that perspective, which makes things a little bit easier from the site side.
1: Yeah, I remember clearly, Emily, I think we ended up with 36 different roles and role types that could be in (laughs) trials and coming up with a resource tool to not be definitive, but at least to provoke people's thinking about how would you put that role in the set of regulatory documents, and who doesn't need to be on the 1572, because that was kind of our mission, like, how can we actually not use the 1572 as a full site roster, but rather to fulfill the expectations of the form?
2: Yeah, and I think, Jane, to that point, you know, the use of community based approach, looking at local draw facilities of a large processing type lab, like a Quest or a Covance or a um, core for instance, those types of facilities, it gets really challenging as far as do you need to onboard and list every single physical location? And are you even going to know what they are based upon the fact that we do have to maintain privacy of our patients as far as where they are located? And you get too, too far down and too close to where they potentially are located, and you're now removing that level of anonymity for those patients.
1: Absolutely. In just so we close that loop, in our little work team, we decided, generally speaking, those large network facilities like a Quest or a Colab, you would not put the individual locations on the forms at um, an IND level, but you might need to capture that information somewhere in the site documentation on the patient experience.
0: Hey, Jane, we have a question in the chat. And by the way, great job, Charlie, using the chat. Others, please feel free. If you don't feel like jumping on stage, feel free to drop a question or perspective over there. Uh, Charlie's question is asking, of those many different roles you were mentioning, 30 plus, can you give a few examples?
1: Sure. Um, So what about a virtual research coordinator? Are they on the form, the 1572 form or not? um how about someone who might be doing trial assessments at a pharmacy that turns out to very much depend on what the assessments are um gee whiz then we talked about central lab facilities radiologists all sorts of things and frankly Charlie a lot of our conversations were not specific to DCTs it turns out there was just a whole lot of ambiguity around this and for trials in general
0: Thanks, Jane. We also have another question in the chat. This is a great one about global adoption, and it's so near and dear We're we're even uh, making sure that that's one of the plenary panels at the DTRA annual meeting coming up in just a few weeks. But Aja is asking if any would like to comment on the global adoption of DCT approaches uh, from sites and if there are specific cultural concerns by country or other regional differences with site staff that are creating additional challenges around adoption. Emily, would you like to take that one?
2: Um, So I'll defer to Maddie to kind of uh, pull her in from a technology perspective and then I can hit it um, from some of the other larger, so Maddie, from our solution enablement perspective, can you kind of go into some of the th- items that we're considering from a adoption perspective, XUS?
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly. When, I mean, no, no surprise to anyone when you're looking at a technology perspective. Um, the you know legal cybersecurity and data privacy regulations according to, in order to enable and utilize and provide that flexibility within features just from a technology standpoint. Um, the the limitations around there, um, I mean, we're fortunate here at, at ICON to have a pretty robust legal and data privacy specific legal team to support us with navigating those. Um, we have yet to, uh, you know, in implement our, our, our platform um, outside of the United States, but we believe we're in a strong, you know, uh, security and GDPR standpoint to do so. Um, one of the things that had kind of helped us um, to, to you know, accommodate that and and be able to sort of feel comfortable from that from a from a legal standpoint, um, was you know around uh, having uh, paying a lot of attention to um, our access and controls framework. Um, wh- you know, we want to be able to enable all of those supporting roles that we've just been discussing to be able to navigate and engage with the platform, which means that the um, you know. Architecture around how those security uh, uh, considerations are managed for access and control within the system are really important and very um, nuanced, depending on which region you're looking into. And then similarly, um, when you're considering, you know, that account access and creation, what kinds of data points you're collecting from um, your users just for the purpose of, um, you know, being a citizen of the technology in terms of, you know, first name, last name, email, phone numbers. Um, um, you know y- utilizing qr codes and things like that they can all be very um specific so you know I, I'm, I'm hoping maybe uh you know we can we can share better as well and and certainly share some of the findings that we've had around uh navigating some of those considerations knowing that everybody doesn't have that kind of you know robust <laughs> legal team to support with navigating some of those questions that we are fortunate to have
2: and Aja, i think you brought up a really great part here around the cultural limitations. Um, And I don't necessarily think that it's by country, but actually by heritage and the patient as well as the physicians. A lot of what we've heard about and talked about uh, within various communities is patients feeling comfortable with physicians who look like them or are of similar ethnicity and cultural backgrounds as them. And when we look at decentralization and the various decentralized approaches, that's something we take into account um, for the physicians as well as for the patients and making sure that they are weighing in on how we're going to do the approach versus just adding technology or home visits or what have you as a way of being air quotes innovative where it's not gonna end up being adopted. We wanna see success um, in utilization as well as in the actual uh, ideas and approaches in the first
5: place. So this is MF. Kept quiet, but but I think this is a very interesting question. And, you know, as someone who was at the bleeding edge of globalisation on clinical trials for 20 years, um, I would say this is not a new issue for us, right? So as we've developed trials globally, it doesn't have to be DCT, there's been cultural differences. Mm -hmm. The best way I can journalize about it is, uh, if you were to compare the US to many other countries, you know in the us uh, especially on the private side side um people see themselves as being in a business and they're providing a service and they tend to be willing to do things as long as it's legal or ethical and you know they think they can do it that's not the case in many countries right they, they don't they don't have that attitude especially if they're academics so i think there's there's cultural differences between different sectors there's cultural differences between whether it's us europe or asia but that that's been there for everything this is not a new thing for dct clearly Uh, i do agree about thinking about kind of patient cultural aspects too for sure Uh, one thing i'm interested in asking is i was on a call recently with uh, quite a few pharma folks discussing uh global sort of adoption and my comment to them was you know i'm assuming you're all leveraging global cro's you know who's businesses to be global and to know this stuff. And um, their answer surprised me. They were actually saying that in many ways, the farmer folks were further ahead in understanding the landscape globally than the global CROs were, which was not my expectation. Um, Emily and others, do you have thoughts about that?
2: I think it depends on the pharma company uh, and what their focus is. So one of our biggest focus and initiatives within ICON has been decentralization and the regulatory acceptance of that,
0: mm-hmm. uh, to
2: the point that we do have a regulatory group that has built out a rather nice database for us as far as being able to look up on a per-country basis mm-hmm. what elements are acceptable in use, um, what elements had been changed because of the COVID COVID. COVID pandemic and now where we can start to push that envelope and say, well, if it worked for COVID, why can't we continue to do this moving forward? Um, It's largely driven based upon where our clients are looking to go, as is the nature of CRO world. Uh, And I think that that probably is where some of the pharma folks feel that they have uh, a larger advancement is because they know and have the insights as far as countries um, and regions that they're looking to do their research in and therefore can focus and target a lot of their research around regulatory acceptance and driving towards change in those regions. Uh, We're at the whim and the mercy of every opportunity that comes in, going and chasing, finding that information, and then continuing to push and interrogate um, the cause with those different agencies.
5: That's great. And can you talk a little bit about how you've tried to support sites globally to kind of help them um, adapt to these?
2: Sure. So, uh, Megan, I think you probably can talk about some of the the training things that we did within the AcelaCare sites for um, Within the US, we're doing similar type approaches uh, globally, as well as utilizing the technology to help support them. So, Megan, can you speak a little bit about how we worked with the sites to kind of bring them along on the journey of what it meant to start doing research in a decentralized capacity?
4: Sure. I mean, definitely um, lots of system accesses, trainings and things like that are 100% needed. And I, I know that that is something that is, um, you know, happening globally. And then also just knowing and going through trainings of what we need from a DCT standpoint and on the site level versus a normal trial and how it's run um, and things like that is what I remember. And then memory
2: (laughs) and then i think the other big piece is making sure that these sites have somebody in local language that they can speak to versus necessarily having to do everything in english um, as the accepted language of clinical research being able to have somebody that they can call up and and have a heart-to-heart conversation we call that our concierge services team within icon um, and this gives them that additional support that they are able to speak with the physicians and talk to them about what challenges they might be having um, as well as bringing them along on that journey of what does it mean to do a decentralized element how is that changing their approach their interaction with the patients and how is it ensuring that they're still having the appropriate oversight
5: so it sounds like you really have done a tried to listen to pis and patients around even their cultural issues you know as you said before so that's good
1: so i i wanted to give a shout out here to the imi innovative medicines initiative trials at home project where they're actually executing a three-arm trial one arm is in person, one is hybrid, one is virtual, and it's across seven European countries. And the reason I call it out is because I think the great thing about that experiment is it gets us into real situations where we can ask both the patient and the site experience, and a lot of the sites who are participating are academicians. So it's a learn by doing moment, and Craig probably can speak to it more than i can but i'm very excited about the work they're doing and how we can use that to help myth bust and also create tools that help us get over the speed bumps
0: yeah, it's a great example to, uh, to call out and one we're definitely uh, actively watching. In fact, next week is the uh, annual meeting for trials at home over in Brussels and online, and certainly we'll be talking about the radial study uh, now that that's actively enrolling. And As you said, Jane, enrolling patients across different, um, different engagement models of traditional brick and mortar um, versus others uh, using different decentralized approaches and um you know having that body of data and evidence around operational concerns data quality and integrity um, it's hard for us as an industry to get that type of experiential data collected in a with the type of scientific rigor that we uh, that we need it's a big investment and um, i'm excited that uh, i think the schedule is by uh by this time next year i think there'll be some good um good findings that start to uh, hopefully shape a lot of our thinking here. You know, and and then we have to keep doing our part in terms of sharing evidence wherever we can across our organizations. You know, I I think a lot about where we are in the adoption cycle with decentralized research. Some people ask me, are sponsors pulling back? Are they carving back? And certainly sponsors are pulling back on lots of things right now. It's a, a challenging economic environment. But um, in the DCT space in particular, I think a lot about the Gartner hype cycle and how we very quickly went through that peak of inflated expectations on the hype cycle. And now in terms of the journey of new capabilities, we're in that trough of disillusionment. We need evidence and operational experience to you know, to keep pulling this investment through and sustain this adoption. So organizations like ICON and others that are building up bodies of evidence. It's so important for the global community to learn from Emily.
2: If I could figure out how to work my unmute button. <laughs> um, I completely agree, Craig. And, and that's where forums like this um, and conferences focused around decentralization and site connection and all of that are also important because i feel like the more that we can talk and share and learn from each other the better the adoption will be moving forward the better the acceptance will be and the better that we can work together collaborate together and really help to drive forward so that we're doing what ultimately is all of our end goal of having medicines and treatments available to patients in a more streamlined fashion to be able to provide them care for whatever stage they're in and the elements surrounding that.
1: And thank you, Craig, for correcting my wrong link to the DTRA.org site. The call out I'll make here is we do have a regulatory conduct map now, and the ask, the call to action is, if you see something that's changed, if you have new information that really means ours is out of date, we have a way for you to drop that to us so we can make the update. It's pretty easy, but we're looking for that collective pre-competitive knowledge base so we can share.
0: So important right now, and it's certainly not just a challenge for DTRA, right? We know that other groups like ACRO, SCRS, Transcelerate, and academic groups like Tufts are all working to try to fill knowledge gaps here. Um, we'll certainly can keep doing our part at DTRA, but because we're so focused exclusively on decentralized research adoption, uh, we also are Um, we believe it's important for us to fill this role of connecting those different resources, just like we see with the tube stop map at DTRA.org being a repository to find not only DTRA solutions that have been developed, but those from other collaborations that uh, we can't make it hard for researchers to find the answers they're looking for wherever they may be. And so our goal is to keep building up DTRA's online resources with not only insights we generate, but also being able to link out to those of other peers. I see we have our guest on the stage, and so hat tip to Emily and Maddie for navigating that within Clubhouse. You're really earning your party hats in the uh, app today. Welcome, Ted. Feel free to introduce yourself for anyone that hasn't had the pleasure. Share your thoughts on today's topic.
6: Thanks, Craig. Emily, well done. It just came off with no problem there. Uh, I am Ted Bartison. I am COO at MedVector, and we are also trying to navigate this uh, uh, this way of uh, utilizing DCT tools and engaging HCPs uh, out in the community. And the thing that jumped out, Craig, when you were talking about the the Gartner trough, and we're kind of at the bottom of that piece right now. Certainly, one of the ways to move forward on this is data, and better outcomes and how we're able to do that type of thing. And I wanted to ask Emily and uh, uh, her team if there's any specific KPIs they're tracking uh, to show the impact of of the way that they're uh, utilizing their DCT tools with PIs uh, and the sites.
2: And I feel like you're setting me up here for a nice another little link to put in referencing back over to the DTRA. So a lot of what ICON is looking at for measuring acceptance of decentralized elements goes back to the KPIs that have been collaboratively built out um, at DTRA with the addition of another one, which is the actual utilization acceptance of those to ensure that what we're doing and what we're strategizing and planning is actually being pulled together and utilized.
6: Love that. Well, I'm, I am all over DTRA. If you guys aren't in the circles, go do it. It's great. But, uh, no, I agree. Have you seen any traction with any of those KPIs? Have you seen any outcomes from uh, any of your activities?
2: So we've seen great case studies, um, and I think this is probably the challenge that the industry as a whole is facing is that how many do you need to qualify as a good traction or a good number um, versus taking a look at a couple of one-off situations here or there? Um, There's just not a large enough volume compared to the scope of traditional trials for us to kind of come together and say, yes, we're seeing that it's speeding up enrollment rate by X percentage. Um, we're definitely seeing figures around utilization of things like home health nursing and the technology uh, e-consent, but not enough on some of the other uh, KPIs around retention of patients or diversity of patients to say that it is at a large scale having an impact of a, a certain percentage.
6: Makes sense. I. I... I do want to mention, I love the, uh, the call out that you did that we need to make sure that we're focused on the trust between the PI and those doctors and HCPs in the community. It's not just the trust that the patient has with their HCP, but the other other direction as well. So I I, I love that concept. I've thought about it, never heard of vocalized like that.
0: That is so well said, you know, we think about trust so much in in research today and we think about it so often with our imbalance around representation and diversity and the importance of earning trust with patients but as jane was pointing out and so many others on this conversation we have these new stakeholders in research to engage and the treating physicians the healthcare care providers um, we can't just assume that they're on board with research and believe that this is right for them to discuss with their patients uh, there is there is trust that has to be built there and to be honest We haven't really done much of that before. I think there is a history of some investigators being very good at hosting coffees and building up networks of referral practices around them, but that's never been something we've scaled. It's always been extremely local, -local hyper-local one-offs. So it's a great call to action, I think, for all of us as we're thinking about um, bringing more scale to stimulating participation, referrals, engagement. Hey, I realize that time just flew by. It's uh, it's already the top of the hour. I'm so glad that Emily, Maddie, and Megan were able to join us today. There's such an interesting body of experience when All of these pieces are in one organization and it doesn't mean that implementation is just a a slam dunk walk in the park. There are real issues that have to be worked through whether it's around internally around compensation or making sure that the right oversight tools processes are in place. But there's so much for all of us to learn from those experiences and I'm really grateful for this group for coming online and sharing with us today. We, uh, we have a busy schedule of uh, gatherings here on Clubhouse and on the Decentralized podcast. So make sure you're following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Amir, Jane and I, DTRA will keep posting what's coming up next. This episode will be dropped on the Decentralized podcast next week. Uh, and if you are listening on the podcast, remember you can join these gatherings live every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the uh, Clubhouse app. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks again, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you again next week.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye.